0: next chapter podcasts support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant
1: Hello, this is Derek Smalls, formerly the band, formerly known as Spinal Sap. And you're listening to The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. And you should turn it the fuck up.
2: Y'all hear that? We had Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap Intro, the episode this week. The song you're listening to was Huey Piano Smith Medley by Dr. John from his 1972 album, Dr. John's Gumbo. It's also number 404 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adamise. I don't even have to change my voice to sound like Dr. John. I just talk naturally, and then, hey, how you doing? Is that Dr. John? No, it's it's me, Josh Adam Myers. Are you sure? Because it sounds like Dr. John. I swear to God. How's all the fleece army doing this week? Dude, do the Instagram story. Show everybody how you're listening to the 500. Take a screenshot of however you're listening to it. Tag me at Josh Adam Myers. Tag the 500 podcast. And then why don't you put a fleece army so we can build this army. The fleeciest of the armies. Also, check out our sponsor this week, Sunset Lake CBD from Vermont. They use organic fertilizers, whatever you guys need in the CBD department. If you like smoking pot, but you don't want to get high, they got hand-trimmed CBD hemp flour, pre-rolls that you can take anywhere, and they're great, set you on a nice even steven vibe and if you don't like smoking they've got that cbd gummies guys they got tinctures topical salves for the muscles that hurt and this oil that i give to my dog this is no bullshit i give the cbd to my dog leka she hurt her paw and it saved her paw it's incredible guys Check them out. Sunset Lake CBD. Use promo code JAM500 for 15% off your next purchase. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't believe in it, and I believe in Sunset Lake CBD. Also, Fleece Army, we have our Patreon. The 500 Club is alive and well, and we are posting full episodes of all the episodes from the last two years on our Patreon, guys. Go to Patreon and sign up. We give you new merch made by Young and Sick great stuff guys sign up for the 500 club you deserve it we deserve it let's help support this incredible show with 95 people working on it we have 95 employees on this let's find out about this record because i knew about dr john I i knew of him i knew like some of the hits but i never really dug into a dr john album and you know when you get a guest like we have today it works out perfectly Released on April 20th, 1972, on ATCO Records. I'm assuming that's ATCO. Produced by Harold Batiste and Jerry Wexler. This is the fifth album by New Orleans singer Dr. John. So he was born Malcolm Mac Rebinac Jr. in New Orleans, Louisiana, in 1941, and raised in the Third Ward. And he came from a musical family that exposed him to jazz. He didn't take lessons until his teens, but Matt quickly started playing guitar in clubs. Then at 13, he met local legend Roy Bird, who was an early rhythm and blues singer and piano player, also professionally known as Professor Longhair. Great name. He was so taken with the musicianship and personal style of Fess. I guess that's what they called him, that he started performing with him in the mid-50s and began his professional music career. While still in high school, he became a songwriter and artist at Aladdin Records and then became a producer and arranger for Ace Records, where he worked with so many of the greats. By the late 50s, while still a teenager, he was playing guitar with lots of other musicians, writing rock and roll songs, and producing and arranging. Cool little fact about Mac, after having a hit, he lied about his age by a year so he could get into the gigs, and it wasn't even noticed and fixed until 2018. But after an injury to his finger, which stopped his ability to play guitar, He switched first to bass, then to piano. And in the early 60s, Matt got caught up with some pretty legal shit and went to prison for two years. When he got out in 65, he found a lot of the club scene shut down in New Orleans. So he followed all the fellow musicians that he knew to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, he quickly became an in-demand session player as well as a member of the Wrecking Crew. But then, in 1968, he created a psychedelic voodoo persona that he called Dr. John the Night Tripper, originally for a friend of his, who declined, so Mac was like, fuck this shit, I'm taking it, and recorded his first album. With a stage show featuring elaborate traditional costumes and voodoo rituals, he released three more albums in that style. But for his next album, he went... Back to his roots. In his autobiography, he wrote, In 1972, I recorded Gumbo, an album that was both a tribute to and my interpretation of the music I had grown up with in New Orleans in the late 40s and 50s. I tried to keep a lot of little changes that were characteristic of New Orleans while working on my own funkology on piano and guitar. That traditional direction and the accessibility of those songs finally broke Mac through to mainstream listeners and paved the way for the success of his follow up album, In the Right Place, which was his highest charting. If you guys all know that one, it goes, Mommy in the Right
3: Place,
2: but talk about the wrong time. That was spot on impersonation. Mac remained a force of nature in the music industry and played with everyone. From Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, the band Frank Zappa, Carly Simon I can go on and on, Bruce Springsteen, the Neville Brothers Played with the Edge Spiritualized, Black Keys Played with everybody He won a shitload of stuff, man He won six Grammys, in 2011 he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame And his birthday is now recognized by the New Orleans City Council as Dr. John Day And November as Mac Month That is badass, man You know what I mean? Maybe Germantown, Maryland will recognize me one day. There's this Instagram page called The MoCo Show, and it just talks about all things Montgomery County, Maryland. And, like, dude will not recognize me. Am I not doing shit? Because I'm doing shit. No, but Mac deserves it, man. Mac, I mean, you know... You listen to this record, you know, and you just, you get taken away to a place that that I've I've been to New Orleans, but it's like you feel like you're just in the center of everything there. You can smell the gumbo, the jambalaya, and and I think Mac 100% deserves any honor he gets. And I have a guest today whose second home is New Orleans, and this dude is so important to my comedic journey, being that he voices Mr. Burns, Smithers, Principal Skinner Ned Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy Kemp Brockman, Dr. Hibbert I can go on and on from The Simpsons Also he's he's one third Of one of my favorite Comedic trios Ever from Spinal Tap The one and only Derek Smalls AKA you know him now as his real name The legend Harry Shearer I am such a fan of this guy's work And so when we found out that the Dr. John record was coming up, it was like, I mean, can't get Dr. John because he passed away. So let's get a person that I mean, wrote an epilogue about his life, worked with him, knows him, lives in New Orleans. Just dude, This is great. And this is why I do the show. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on every platform. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. Also, guys, October 8th, I'm going to be doing a goddamn comedy jam at the in crowd. We'll have a ticket link up soon. It's going to have some of your favorite comedians all doing stand-up, then telling a story about why they chose the song they're going to sing, then singing that song with a live band. And you can watch it all from the comfort of your house. It's going to be awesome. Check my Instagram at Josh Adam Myers for all the details and my Twitter, all my shit. Just check it. Email the podcast at 500 podcastgmailcom at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam. And for all things 500, go to our website, the 500 podcastcom Welp, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 404 out of 500, with Dr. John's Gumbo, by Dr. John. If at any moment, you want to start Making fun of me as Mister Burns, please, dear God, do it. I well, I could die a happy man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the first thing I did to Tress McNeil, I was like, please, just yell at me as, as Agnes Skinner yeah. because she's my favorite character in the history of anything.
1: Yeah, no, Tress is one of my favorite people too.
2: Oh, she's so great. Yeah. Oh, she's just so great. Um, so and also, I think. Uh, the most quoted line me and my sister have uh from Spinal Tap is not the famous ones it's you saying uh, David smell the gloves here hello Janine <laughs> just that sim- that that's the one that stuck with me dude
1: <laughs> You know I haven't seen that movie in in decades so uh but I, you you brought that to mind so No I love it I saw that moment yeah
2: I love it I love it All right so this is actually really weird that we're doing this too, talking about an album that's so New Orleans, because uh, I'm pretty sure that tomorrow is the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, so I almost feel like this is apropos that we're talking about such a deep New Orleans rooted record. So tell me, when did you first hear Dr. John?
1: Well, f- first of all, I want to say, as deeply rooted in New Orleans as that record seems to be, it was recorded in. Studio City, California. Yeah,
4: of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I
1: don't I think most of his early records were. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look it up. But I I, I happen to know about Gumbo that it was, uh, and uh, we down there uh, like to refer to the 15th anniversary of the federal flood because the hurricane did great damage along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, but the damage to New Orleans was visibly different in the sense that you can tell the difference between wind damage and water damage. And we got water damage from the failure of a federal protection system. So
2: Yeah, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. That was such a crazy time in the world. Maybe, maybe right now it rivals that, but uh, you know, it was what's so great about New Orleans is that I went down to New Orleans a few years later. So that was oh six and I went in two thousand and eight eight and it's a, for all-star weekend. And you could just see the, the love for the city and, and it didn't stop the people. Like the people
1: are what, what makes that city. It's not the buildings. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, I One of my final note on this before we get back to the record, but one of my favorite experiences ever was the first Mardi Gras after the flood, which is February of 2006. And people were, well-meaning people, let's be uh, overly generous. Yeah. Uh, well, well-meaning people were saying, "What are you people doing? Having a Mardi Gras in the middle of you know your city is, is has just recovered from being underwater, and you're doing this." And the only answer that was possible, at least it was the answer that I found uh, possible, was, "This is what we do." Yeah. This is this is how we we know we're still here. Is this is what we do. And it was only for the locals. There were no tourists there, and it was uh, satirical. It was viciously attacking every person in authority who fucked the situation up. Uh, it was people came out in the streets to laugh uproariously at the creators of their disaster, and then went back to you know gutting their homes. Yeah, it was remarkable. <laughs> yeah, um, my first experience with with Mac, Mac Rabinac, yeah. the real name of Dr. John was, I had a friend who saw it as one of his purposes in life to, uh, turn me on to marijuana. I was a late, a late adopter. That's a good <laughs>
2: friend, dude. That's a good yeah. friend.
1: <laughs> no shit. And he really had to work at it. Um, <laughs> because the first, first, seriously, the first nine times that I smoked marijuana, I felt nothing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was just, you know, I, I well, we can go off on a whole tangent sure. there, but, <laughs> and we'll smoke some and we will, yeah. but, um, no, it was just, I, I, did, I, did, I I, there was nothing going on. And so he'd start, he'd play records to try to enhance the vibe. And, uh, one of the first, maybe the first record that he put on was Gri Okay. And, uh, I certainly... I was more intoxicated by the record than I was by the marijuana. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I just thought, yeah, you know, I hadn't heard anything like that. I had heard the mid-60s hits from New Orleans, you know, Mother-in-Law and and all those Alan Toussaint songs that were recorded by uh, different artists, Ernie K. or, or uh, Lee Dorsey, and uh, all those. But I, I had no reference point. And here comes this guy with this utterly otherworldly kind of uh, view of things uh, as this voodoo guy. Um, and as it turns out, a lot of the reference points in that record were really fairly ordinary uh, New Orleans references, like Mama Roo. When you learn what a Roo is, you know, it's, it's just the way you start a lot of sauces. Um, so I, I had, you know... I knew stuff about I I knew a little stuff about New Orleans but I didn't know much. And then uh so I was totally captured by the record as I say it was it, it was e- easier for that to become a habit than for for weed. Um and then I followed him pretty closely after that. Um and this record as you know was the first time that he kind of abandoned the Dr. John the Night Tripper uh, character and just became Dr. John um and and dropped the voodoo and and in this record um, kind of just paid tribute to, well, I mean, it, it's amazing. Uh, there are three Earl King songs on this record. Yeah. And Earl King is, is not widely known outside New Orleans, but uh, I was fortunate enough to see him a bunch uh, before he passed away. Remarkable guitar player, incredible songwriter, uh, a bit uh, undependable as a live performer, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know. You you hope there were there were a few there have been a few people like that in New Orleans and the the up shows are so great. I mean there was this the guy called Johnny Adams. I don't know if you ever heard Johnny Adams. No. Oh my God, Johnny Adams had a an R and B career in the fifties uh, where he was his nickname was the Tan Canary. <laughs> those kind of names they used to give people in yeah, those yeah, days yeah. <laughs> and then he had a comeback career in the 90s and aughts as a jazz singer and he made a bunch of records on rounder in new, new orleans one of the most amazing singers you'll ever hear amazing voice and uh, and always dressed to the nines you know his handkerchief and his socks and everything match and uh, there were gigs where you thought he stopped caring after he put the suit on, yeah. And then there were gigs where he thought, "I've never heard a, a better voice in my life." So Earl King is one of those people who you took your chances, but on the the rate the great nights, nice, my God, and he wrote three of the songs on uh, on Gumbo. They are New Orleans classics, all that, that's why they're on the record, um, and uh, so it's really. It's really a great catalog of uh, some of the, you know, there's a there's a canon of New Orleans songs that are. Yeah,
2: this is this is him going back to his roots. So I found this quote in his autobiography. Uh, Max said in 1972, I recorded Gumbo, an album that was both a tribute to and my interpretation of the music I had grown up with in New Orleans in the late 40s and 50s. I tried to keep a lot of little changes that were characteristic of New Orleans while working on my own, and I love this funkology on <laughs> piano and guitar so 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 Harry, for me, um I have always heard of Max music, you'd heard of Dr. John. you you know that voice is so just you you hear it, and you know immediately it's him. It's but a this, baby. Yeah, how you do it? I mean, I assume, you know what's funny? The voice that I do on uh, F is for Family, DJ Howlin' Hank, is literally just uh, like a mishmash of Dr. John and Wolfgang. It's just, all right, baby, how we doing? Okay. But it's, but that's what I'm saying. He's got, he's such a character. And this is my first, you know, drinking from the well of Dr. Mm. John. I've never, I knew, like, I know, like, oh, I was in the wrong way. Right like I know that, but this was my first real album of his. And to be honest with you, I, I couldn't have had more fun listening to this record. I-, I It captures everything that I envision New Orleans is. Just a fun party town. You know, the music comes on. You can't not dance to this. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't feel this record, then you're dead inside. Yeah. Um, and it's just incredible. So I can see, w- you know, I can see why, you know, you you gravitated towards this. I'm a little upset that it took nine times for you to get high. I want to know what was it like the tenth time you got high and listened to this record.
1: Uh, it, it wasn't this record that w- <laughs> was playing when I the, the, when I actually got high the first time. Uh, it was. Uh, I'm 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 not going to mention that record in this context because it just no, seems wildly inappropriate, dude. It, it's. So, but I want to know,
2: because not only did you grow as a fan, but on your 2012 album, uh, Can't Take a Hint, you actually had Mac sing a song you wrote called Autumn in New Orleans. Can you tell me about that?
1: Well, um, I've been writing songs for a while, uh, mainly satirical songs, but uh, on that album I wrote two unfortunately sincere songs. You know, I'm embarrassed to be sincere, one of those people. And uh, I, I... I'd spent that year, I, this was 2010, and I'd spent that year almost every day in New Orleans. Uh, I had made a documentary about the uh, the flood, and I uh, had made it in New Orleans, edited it in New Orleans, and then was going to bring it out uh, the uh, fifth anniversary of the flood and, in New Orleans. And so I went through the whole... Uh, meteorological year. And I had that experience in mid to late September of the day when the summer finally quits, the heat breaks, you can open the windows, you can air out the house because you don't need the AC on. And um, it's just the city has this great exhale of relief that summer's over. And I thought nobody's Nobody's ever written about that. They've written about autumn in New York, obviously, and a few other places. And so I just just channeled my inner Hoagy Carmichael and uh, wrote a song about autumn in New Orleans, which is sort of a list song, just all the signs that autumn has arrived. And uh, I did the demo of it, but I thought, nah, nah. And I'd run into Mac a few times. And we have a mutual friend, David Torkanowski, who's a wonderful New Orleans piano player. And we just called up Mac and said, do you want to do this? Would you be willing to do this? And mercifully, he said yes. And we got him in a studio and, and got him to record it. It was uh, it was a pretty spectacular experience, you know.
2: It was everything you had dreamed of. Yeah. Like just jamming. Because he's such a legend. I mean, before even... Going solo, he's play he's one of the wrecking crew. I mean, the guy is was the go to guitarist and then eventually pianist. I mean that's You
1: know why he switched.
2: Oh, I know, trust me. It's, it's, he was defending a friend and he got his finger blown off, right? Yeah. That's that's the most badass shit <laughs> yeah. ever, dude. But the dude, idea
1: goes with the character. The idea that what you do when you lose a finger as a guitarist is take up the piano. It's equally crazy. He's like, I can't stop. Equally crazy. He's like, I got to keep going. Yeah, but I mean, the piano, if any instrument wants 10 fingers on it, it's the piano. Oh, yeah. And he goes, No, no, nine will be good enough. (laughs) Nine's perfect. He's like, I can do it. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, he was uh, well along in his life. uh, So I wasn't going to waste his time by telling him all the gigs I'd seen and all that shit. You know, I figured didn't need that uh, let's 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 have fun and do the song but i mean i i'd seen mac gigs at jazz fest you know too numerous to mention yeah as well as uh when he i was in london he came over to london and and played ronnie scott's and it was uh killer um so yeah i i've we've intersected a few a good few times you know um
2: you're a fan dude yeah
1: but you know we're also Fellow New Orleans, New Orleanians at this point, you know, and we run into each other in, the, in various situations. Um, I love that. You know, the, um, obviously, Iko Iko was the song in this record that really was his breakout hit. That was, I think, the first song that uh, got major, let's say, radio airplay. I mean, the uh, Gri" got kind of underground radio airplay, but Iko Iko was a, a proper hit um and it's really if you think about it it's the broadest exposure that uh the patois of the New Orleans Mardi Gras Indians has ever gotten the ico ico and a lot of the otherwise indecipherable lyrics in that song are from Mardi Gras Indians who uh i, I don't know if you know anything about them but
2: um yeah we have um this is written by James Sugarboy Crawford uh also known as uh, Giacomo Mm -hmm. in 1953. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a huge hit for the Dixie Cups in 65. Yeah. Uh, And this is probably one of the most iconic and covered New Orleans songs ever. Uh, Here, let's play a little taste of it. Peter, play something. We gone down. So, from my understanding, uh, he wrote the song about two tribes of Mardi Gras Indians colliding at a parade. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, this is, uh, you know, when this whole album opened and this is how we're starting the record, I mean, I Go I Go On Day is a song that I've heard, you know, throughout my lifetime, but I've never heard it so funky, so fun. And like, you know, speaking of that, that this is about Mardi Gras Indians colliding. I mean, this sounds like something that should be played as they're going down Bourbon Street and just dancing. Well, they I won't mean... be going down
1: Bourbon Street because that's where the tourists go, but they'd be going down some street in their neighborhood. Um, you won't find Mardi Gras Indians in, in Bourbon Street, uh, but uh, come Mardi Gras Day, one of the great uh, one of the great uh, adventures is to find out where the Indians are, um, and they're usually under some freeway bridge at this point in time. The way the city has been uh, deconstructed, but uh, yeah, uh, it's very hard to explain the whole Indian thing. It's it's much much better to experience it um, because it's they don't follow any schedule they don't follow any route. Um, after a number of years of uh, clashes with police, the police have learned that they don't have a permit. They're not going to get a permit. Uh, they're part of the culture of the community. They're some will argue almost a religious part of the culture, and that you protect them and, and let them be and let them do that, do their own thing. Um, the, the sort of the rough version is that these are groups or gangs that formed in the 19th century. Uh, and one version of the story is because uh, in those days, Native Americans were the only people who treated black Americans as people. Uh, they are, paying homage to Native Americans by adopting some of their, uh, by acting in, in emulation of Native American tribes. So they named themselves different tribes. Most pointedly, they make and wear a new set of suits, uh, uniforms, feathered, spangled costumes every year. The guys do the sewing uh, and all the, all the beadwork. And they come out three days a year, Mardi Gras morning, and then two other days in contest. And the contest was originally kind of physical in nature. Uh, it was violent sometimes. It got transmuted over this, the decades into a contest purely of display. And the, the greatest compliment you can pay a Mardi Gras Indian is to tell him. Man, you were the prettiest. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love and that. they have this whole language of which Ico Ico, you know, Giacomo Finané is part. And so, as I say, this is – Dr. John managed to mainstream part of this very, very exotic while indigenous culture to the rest of the country who had no idea of any of this, but they just loved the sound and particularly the beat. That's called – that came to be called uh, by many people the Bo Diddley beat, but it's, really, but it's really the Mardi Gras Indian beat.
2: No, no, I dig
0: it.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce.
0: And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB.
2: I I want to talk to you about uh about Worlds Colliding because uh with this is Spinal Tap you guys combined comedy and music I think better than anybody has ever done it uh I remember seeing Spinal Tap on PBS when I was like <sighs> 7 PBS? maybe I know dude there it was like under American Masters or something <laughs> they were like honoring wow. it And dude, I thought it was real. I remember I went to Waxy Maxi the next day to go buy the record, and I was like, "Yeah, it should be in the heavy metal section." And they were like, (laughs) "No, this is in comedy." And I was like, "What the, what the hell?" But dude, like you know, if you think about it, you guys are lampooning. Uh, the heavy metal bands uh, that came before the movie, mm-hmm. and it also really pre-satirizes the '80s metal scene that exploded a year or so later. And mm-hmm. from from what I know, bands like Motley Crue, Guns and Roses, and Nirvana would describe having these Spinal Tap moments in their career. The only mm-hmm. the only band uh, that really didn't like it is Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Because they had an album entitled Rock in a Hard Place that had Stonehenge on the cover, uh, which is great. So were you guys fans of heavy metal uh, in the scene before this all started? Like, how did it come about? I know that's such a bland question, but I I just love this so much. Like, so tell me where you guys were at before you guys got started.
1: Okay, uh, first of all, uh, uh, one of the two brothers in Oasis hated it too. Uh, really, they're the crazy. They one. would.
2: They they seem yeah. a little like they can't take a joke sometimes. Right, you know I mean?
1: right. Um, they the band originated as part of a TV show that we did a pilot. Uh, we we had a a uh, a, a pilot deal to, to do this show, uh, and the show was a really simple idea, and it was with a major American network. I I I won't name it, but it's as simple as ABC, and the uh, the premise was. You see a guy in a lounge chair, you're seeing him from the back. He's got a remote in his hands and a TV in front of him. And he's clicking through the stuff on TV and the re- the show, the hour-long show is what he's watching. The beauty part of that is that comedy sketches very often are really great and they have terrible endings. Yeah. And so we had, you know, a sketch and had a shit ending. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> You remote clicks off before you have to get to the ending. And then there's something else, a commercial, a fake commercial or something. And so it's the end of the day we're going through the broadcast day kind of that he's watching. And at the end of the day, there's a parody of a show that was on in those days. Hosted by Wolfman Jack called the midnight, midnight special. Oh yeah. So we created this band to be on there and do a silly song, do a dumb song called rock and roll nightmare. Um, and while we're filming that, while we're taping that, actually, we're on the floor. A, there's supposed to be smoke pouring down on us from above, and the camera's up there. And instead, it's hot oil because the smoke <laughs> machine isn't working. So rather than killing the prop man, which I heard was illegal in California, yeah, we were on the floor just saying, what else do we do with these guys? We could do more stuff with these guys. And that was really the impetus for... We got together, we got into a hotel room in in Beverly Hills, started writing the script, uh, decided after three days, nobody will understand it if they read it. Let's go make, let's take the money and go make a demo of what the film would be. And we made a 20 minute demo with many of the songs and a lot of the jokes and took it around to every movie studio. I mean, every one of the big studios in Hollywood. And after the lights would come up after we showed it uh, in everyone, uh, the stairs were blanker than uh, Dan Scavino's at the Republican convention. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you saw that look. Yeah. Dude. Um,
2: <laughs> they all had looks like that. Yeah. I mean. It was
1: all the Dan Scavino look. And it's like, well, well, what, what's that then? We said, well, that would be a feature film, sir. Oh, rock and roll movies don't make any money. So we almost didn't ever get to make it uh, except that Rob knew Norman Lear because Norman Lear had, been the producer of All in the Family, and Rob was uh, one of the stars on the show. And for about two years, Norman Lear ran a little movie studio, co- co-ran it. And so he green lit it, and that's the only reason it got made in the first place. Um, and then we just decided, um, we didn't really set out to make an improv movie. What we set out to do was to make a movie that looked like it was... It was real. You wanted a rock documentary. Yeah. yeah.
2: Lampooning it, yeah.
1: And so improv was not the... And it was the means to make the movie look like what we claimed it was. Uh, and so every every word of it was improvised except for a Patrick McNeese toast to tap into America. We wrote that for him.
2: Oh, that is... Did you have any idea, like, like just seeing where that genre of comedy has gone? Because you guys are the, the are the the gold standard, in my opinion, of like the the mockumentary. Yeah. So to see it grow, I mean, I mean, how does that?
1: Were you are you shocked? Yeah, I'm shocked and dismayed um, because you know now now Ricky Gervais came came up to me when I met him in London years later and said, you know, that was what inspired him to do the office. Um, so that's lovely. I mean, I think that office is a great piece of work, especially the English one. Um, but a lot of them, it's become just a, a kind of a camera trick at this point. Uh, we were very mindful. There's this guy who's a fan inexplicably of this semi-mediocre band. Um, and the choices in what's being covered are his choices it's his film yeah there's a person who made in our mockumentary universe the mockumentary the style has been adopted without that kind of understanding of the frame so who's making this who's shooting this why is why is this being captured there's, that that all went away so you know now it's just ooh a lot of swish pans you should pardon the expression yeah um, I'm not being anti-anything. Swish pants is a technical term, <laughs> um, but uh, don't send that. Le- don't send letters. Um, but so, you know, I, I, I feel like, I mean, everything gets overdone and everything loses its impetus when repeated often enough, I guess.
2: No, I understand, but I can't thank you enough for making it. It's still, you know, anytime I sing to my nieces, I I always use the melody of Big Bottoms. So we have one that's like, Sleep over, sleep over. Talking about sleeping, I'm coming over. And I can keep going. It goes and goes and goes. All right, let's move on to the next song, Blow, Wind, Blow. So this might uh, be my favorite moment on the record. Peter, play it.
0: So cool thing
2: about that little skadoodle that he did. All right, so this is the first of several Huey Piano Smith songs on the record. Now, Smith, was a pioneer of rock and roll piano playing after merging the styles of jazz, boogie, and rhythm and blues together. Besides his own hits, he played piano in the studio for Little Richard and Earl King, and while he was on Ace Records, he helped sign Mac as a teenager. Now, why I say that and why it's cool is that lick that goes in between, so he created that shuffle lick where the right hand plays through the break. so it could be like bow, bow, bow. Mm-hmm. that is one of the coolest things ever, like because I just thought that was just a staple in music, so to find out that this is the dude that did it uh is is just blows my mind it it blows my wind and blows me back
1: and and and, and it has become. One of the trademarks of the New Orleans piano style. It is uh, uh, used by almost every pianist I know in town uh, as just, uh, uh, it, it happens in breaks, it happens in solos, it happens all over the place, but it is just an announcement that this is New Orleans style. Um, and it it's, happens in jazz, it happens in R&B, and happens in all kinds of music. I, I One of the things I love about the city is that um, it is still, as ever, a piano town. You know, the the roots of jazz go back to piano players in brothels. Um, guys would be playing normally behind a curtain so that the patrons of the brothel didn't so know. So people,
2: people could get be getting dry humped.
1: Yeah, the, but, Oh, no, but, not,
2: not, no, get humped
1: humped. Humped humped. Not yeah, even but, dry humped. No, that that's if you got cheated. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they, the musicians were playing behind the curtains so that the white patrons didn't realize that they were being entertained by black performers because oh. that's how it was back then. Uh, but mainly it was pianists. That's where, you know, the, the, the roots of jazz lie in the pianos of brothels. And uh, New Orleans has remained a piano town. There are great guitarists in town, of course. But uh, the piano remains the really the, the piano and the trumpet are the two musical symbols of New Orleans, and Huey Piano Smith, as you know, created a lot of the the pieces of that style.
2: I would just love to, to be a fly on the wall when all of those piano players are, like, hanging out at the bar. They're like, yo, Big Frank, what you doing later? Dude, I'm playing a bukkake at 6 <laughs> o'clock. Yep, I got the bukkake at 6. What are you doing? I'm doing a fuck fest at 7. <laughs> all right,
1: well, don't yep. forget to do that. There's a documentary, uh, I think it's by Les Blank, called Piano Players Rarely Play Together. So... Check it Uh, out. I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, All right. Moving on. Big Big chief. Big chief. Earl King gets credit. Um, It was sort of also a lot of the credit goes to. uh, Professor Longhair, who was the first person to really play it, at least on piano. Earl King was a guitar player, Uh, and it's identified with Longhair also because uh, he was a great whistler and, and there's. Sequences in the song where the where the melody is not sung but whistled, uh, but Earl definitely is a, a major contributor to it. Big Chief again, uh, Mardi Gras Indian reference. Big Chief is a uh, chief of the Indian tribe, and uh, the lyrics describe the the idea of what a, a chief is and what he can and can't do.
2: Such a great song. Uh, one of my favorite things is when you get uh, the artist to do this. This guttural, like woo ha. And uh, we found our first one on the record. Peter, play uh, Max screaming. So you've got you've got that. The song just pops. And then my favorite part is definitely the ending where they have that call and response. It, it's, it's like if I just couldn't not move when listening mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. I, that style of music is just so incredible. Uh, but I wanted to go off and ask you something about the word Big Chief. So you have a new album coming out on October 30th and you've been releasing a single and often a video each week in the run-up. It's titled the many moods of Donald Trump (laughs) and something tells me, uh, it may very well be something of a concept album.
1: So, uh, well, uh, you have to understand that the title itself is a joke because he has only one mood. Fuck me. Fuck you. (laughs) That's the mood. That's the mood of Donald Trump. But it, the the title is actually a rip from this. This goes deep take me. put the, put the mask on and, and, and hold your breath I'm in uh, the Beach Boys had uh, they were brothers they were the Wilson brothers and they had a father who managed them uh, Murray Wilson one of the worst fathers in show business maybe next to Joe Jackson really uh, oh yeah uh, and for his last he negotiated the label deal. For the boys, for the Beach Boys with Capital. And the last deal he negotiated before they left for another company, he had negotiated a record for himself, although he had no history as a performer of any kind. <laughs> I own that record. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it is it is still in its original wrapping. It has never been played for good and sufficient reason. And the name of the record is The Many Moods of Murray Wilson.
2: Oh. <laughs> But is there a a coincidence uh, that this record is dropping a week before the election? I mean...
1: Well, the songs are coming out all through the election season. It's called Good Timing. (laughs) You could say that. I mean, it's... Yeah, you could. Uh, You know, the guy, you may have noticed, uh, has a certain need for attention. And so I decided to satisfy it. Oh, God. (laughs)
2: So he'll be like, he's like, Spinal Tap was terrible. Never was a fan of the tap.
1: <laughs> always,
2: always with the joking, the Simpsons. It's a, it's a bad show. Terrible show. It ran for Rating. it's on for thirty one years. I don't care. It's terrible. It's on the verge. the ratings have
1: been terrible. The ratings it's run for thirty two years, but the ratings have sucked. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, he's he's a he's a
2: dip, dude. He's a dip. I you know I don't care if my listeners like like him. We can we can love music together and still disagree over politics. He's a dip, and uh, the the are you a New Yorker? I'm from Washington D.C.
1: Oh, okay. Because I mean, if you were if you Either were a New Yorker or paid attention to New York. Uh, you knew what he was long since. You know, yeah. It, it's the same. It's the same basic act when he, uh, in the early '90s, used to call up the New York Post and the Daily News, the two tabloids in New York, pretending to be his own press agent, John Barron, and telling them, giving them tips like Marla Maple says it's the best sex she's ever had, and they knew it was him. <laughs> And they printed it anyway, and then he got to denounce them. And that's the same act that's been going on, the same dance between him and the media ever since.
2: All right, so then I gotta ask you this. Like when when you see that these uh not conspiracy theories, but almost like the Simpsons predicted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, is there discussion uh, amongst the, the cast and the, and the, and the people, folks? I know, you know, from all the videos, and you've made these little shorts basically being very anti Trump, which I love, and it makes me love the show even more. But I mean, you know, what do you say to the people that say there is a psychic that is working on The Simpsons that's predicting the future?
1: I say, if there really was, we'd all be at the track every day (laughs) and fuck the studio.
2: (laughs) You're right. All right, moving on. Uh, Somebody changed the lock. This is the only original on the record, but in my opinion, it fits right in. Uh, Peter, play the intro. How do you feel when listening to this song? Any thoughts on it?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's sort of inspired by a traditional New Orleans song, which Mac then recorded on his 1992 record, Going Back to New Orleans, which is the, the mate to this record. Again, uh, very few originals, but he's going back and getting some more of the classic New Orleans song. And the song on on the 1992 record is "How Come My Dog Don't Bark When You Come Around." It's it basically it's like somebody comes around, the dog doesn't bark, and it's his woman has been fucking him.
2: Ah, so the dog knows. The dog knows. The dog's comfortable. He's probably giving the dog
1: yeah. some treats. Yeah. How come my dog don't bark when he <laughs> when he come around? That's the song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of the same sort of. Message, but Mac Mac was uh, writing his own version of it in uh, for this record. I, I, have you listened to uh, Going Back to New Orleans? I
2: haven't. I, I oh. like I said, I've you know I've I so many records to listen to on this list, and I was listening to this one. I probably did like twelve to thirteen listens. I know the hits by Mac, but I don't like. I don't know his deep catalog, uh, but I but I want to. It's great.
1: He he had no hits from this record, but this is. Uh, as deep, if not deeper, than Gumbo in terms of the uh, dipping into the the well of New Orleans uh, classics. Uh, and um, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. This was one of the records I had when we did the uh, 26 City Spinal Tap Tour. This was my bus record. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. oh, I love oh that. yeah. I
2: love that. I love that. Uh, So let's talk about fitting in because uh, we've mentioned the Simpsons, but you've been uh, working as one of the stars since 1989 and you voice, I mean, some of the most iconic characters on the show, Principal Skinner, Ned Flanders, Mr. Burns, Waylon, Smithers, Reverend Lovejoy. I could go on and on. And you voice Lenny, which I love so much.
3: Yeah, yeah, I did.
2: (laughs) How did, how long did it take you to lock in each character's voice? Like, and is, is there like an influence that you're looking to or direction you're trying to take them? Like when they present you with these characters, how did you come up with them?
1: Uh, first of all, in almost every case, I think every case, uh, I saw no drawings. Uh, the, the scripts were written and the, and recorded before the drawings were done. So I had no idea what the characters looked like. So I'm just, I'm seeing a script and it, and it has like a one line description of the character. And I will tell you that almost no brain cells were used in the process of uh, deciding how the character sounded. I saw the thing on the page, made an intuitive kind of leap, uh, didn't do any analysis, didn't do any thinking, really, and figured, all right, the first sound that comes out of my mouth will be it unless they tell me, don't do that again. (laughs) And they didn't. Um, So... You know, it was just, uh, I guess if I want to, in the same spirit in which Donald Trump said in his acceptance speech, I I say very modestly, and I thought, no, no, stop there. (laughs) You got the laugh, babe. Um, I can say very modestly that this was inspired guesswork is all I can tell you.
2: Oh, my goodness. So, I mean did you have any idea of how special the show was going to be that first season? I mean, did no. the idea that it ran for 32 years. I mean, that's the majority of
1: my life. I was going to say it's the, it's all of your life, but I, you look younger than you. Thank you anyway, very much. No, you. My pleasure. Um, I can say that very modestly. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, anybody who tells you that they knew something was going to be a big hit is lying. You know, uh, this is all a crap shoot. Uh, everything has to line up just right. Uh, stuff, yeah, uh, I, uh, somebody used to say, oh, I think it was a, it was a, the uh, great cynic of the 1920s, H.L. Uh, Mencken said, you can never go broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. And I would point to him, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which lost $50 million trying to do just that. So even if you try to be, absolutely cynical and go, okay, this is dumb enough for them. You have a good chance of missing. Um, the great Mort Saul on the other hand used to say, um, be as smart and intelligent as you can be in your work. Uh, you never know when the audience will get it, but it makes your work better, you know?
2: So do you have a moment where, uh, at the beginning of the simpsons where you realize this was a special show though what was the moment you were like holy shit like this because i mean i i just can only remember being you know eight nine years old and seeing it on tracy ullman then seeing the christmas special and then it was the only show i wanted to watch (laughs) and so i mean i it was just you owned all the t-shirts we that's all we talked about i mean christ i have you know, I have the, like I showed you earlier, I have Homer and Ralph and Agnes Skinner and Mo like tattooed on my arm. And it's wow. like, it's, it's more than, than just, uh, an animated television show. It's, yeah. it's a yeah. part of American culture.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I, I was attracted to it because of the way we were going to work. We were going to work all together, like doing old radio show style. Um, Uh, And then I started seeing the scripts and I thought, well, you know, this is pretty interesting. This is this network that barely exists at that time, the Fox broadcast network in most cities. It was on UHF stations, which meant you had to have a special or a special antenna or a coat hanger (laughs) on your TV to get the channel in the first place. So, and the network, uh, if you remember, You may not because marketing may have not been interesting to you in those days. But uh, the network was wildly promoting itself as all the shows had Fox Attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fox Attitude. Married with Children's got Fox Fox Attitude. Attitude. Yeah. (laughs) So now what that meant, in fact, and I did did know this when I joined the show. Um, Jim Brooks was a successful and well-regarded movie director. Yeah. Yeah. And Fox was trying to sign people like Jim, and not a, not only people like Jim, but Jim, uh, to give the network cred. And Jim was smart enough to negotiate a deal where there was no network interference in the show. And I knew that that was a good sign. I knew that that oh, was a great sign. Yeah, that that would mean we'd have the range to be better than most. So those were those were my first inklings. We were off. We had uh started doing season two before season one really aired, so uh, all we knew was we were good enough that we deserved a season two
4: yeah
1: <laughs> uh, but that you know that non-interference was was really stay has stayed crucial and you know we like to say especially at the Republican convention that America uh likes and respects success but when the Simpsons became big and it became known that we had uh, a deal that allowed no network interference at the very same time, ABC had fired their programming president and hired a new one who said, uh, that, uh, he or she, I forget which, was going to add a whole new, uh, staff of program supervisors from the network to do exactly what we didn't have. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, uh, you'd think people would want to emulate this key to our success. And of course, no.
2: Yeah. Dude, it's so great. Uh, Can I, can I ask Mr. Burns a question? Yes. that be okay. Yes. Uh, um, How am I doing as host of this podcast?
1: You might put on real clothes first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my comfies. What do you want to do? That's exactly my point we work from home mr burns
1: yes i'll work you from home (laughs) all
2: right i'd hang with mr burns (laughs) definitely i'd kick it with burnsy all right uh let's move on i
1: know know what you mean
2: oh waylon i know what you mean Oh my God! I'm gonna have you do my voicemail message because I love. No, you're so not. Much. No, I know. I I can't. I'm just. I I'm trying my best to not fanboy out. So let's move <laughs> on. Let's move on to mess around because I mean this is a, such a such a staple of Ray Charles catalog. Uh, if you don't know and you've been living under a rock, this was written uh, by Atlantic Records founder and president Ahmed Erdogan. If I hopefully I said his last name wrong. Yeah,
1: and that's and that's one of the most suspicious writing credits in the history of popular music. How does, a record, how, how does a record company president... Now, I'll tell you this. I'm not making aspersions against the late Ahmed Erdogan because he was a, a, a great force in the music business. But there was a guy uh, you may have heard of, uh, Dick Clark. Oh, of course. Who, for years, had a show on TV in the afternoon called American Bandstand. And uh, in the age of the Paola scandal, where DJs were taking money to play records, uh, people wondered... How come Dick Clark didn't ever get, you know, caught? And the reason was because he said, don't don't pay me money. Just give me the publishing.
2: Wow.
1: Big on Dick Clark. Smooth move. Yeah. So I don't know. I You know, when I hear that a record company president has writing credit, I I think of that story.
2: Yeah. But what I what I love about this song is that yeah, this was a big hit for Ray Charles in 1953. But uh, you know, Mac makes this his own. It's oh, his yeah. own version. Oh yeah. Here, Peter, play a little taste. I mean Ray Charles is so iconic, but uh, but this takes his version and then fuses it with that New Orleans sound, and in my opinion, it's perfect. It's a yeah. perfect cover of it.
1: Yeah, it is. It uh, and it it just that uh, you know the the beat that we heard in "Ico Ico" is is a marching beat. The uh, That's the beat, as I said, of the Mardi Gras Indians, and and that's a beat that energizes you along with a certain amount of alcohol to walk three or four miles because that's what they do when they go out in the streets. Uh, This is a dancing beat, and this is like just a frenetic dancing beat, you know, it's crazy crazy
2: good oh it's fantastic it's
1: fantastic
2: all right moving on to let the good times roll and what i love uh the most about this song and being that you are a bass player is the bass uh peter play the outro uh when jimmy calhoun is just going off I mean that is just fantastic. I got I got to give uh, props to Jimmy Calhoun. He's killing it throughout the whole record, but when he gets to shine in this, I just love it so much. And as you're a bass player, right? Yes, sir. Yes. So I mean, is that do you just suddenly you have to be gravitating towards that when you hear this?
1: What well, yeah, and you you notice your your ear goes much more to the bass for the pulse of this song than to the drums. That's nothing against the drummer, but uh that's very reminiscent of the Motown records where James Jamerson or uh, Carol Kay, uh whoever's doing the, the mainly Jamerson, um basically you hear the drums on the turnarounds, bum it dum bum. But in the body of the song, the pulse is always carried by the bass. And uh to me, it's my it's my uh it's my bias. That's a more compelling pulse than the, than the drums are, you know. It just it makes that makes you move every part of your body when a bass player is really killing it like
0: that. Oh, I love it.
1: Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday out now through Sound Talent Media.
2: So this is based on Louis Jordan's 1946 Jump Blues song of the same name. And this is another one uh, by Earl King. It was originally recorded as Darling Honey Angel Child before <laughs> being retitled Come On. Um, talking about rolling, I wanted to ask you about Le Show. Yeah. Because that's been rolling for 37 years is that right 37 years which if my listeners don't know uh it is harry's weekly hour-long syndicated satirical topical political sketch comedy musical i mean it's everything it's a news program it's a radio program um it's a podcast it's a podcast with everything that you've got on your schedule how and why has le show remained so consistent and important to you
1: Well, because radio is such an efficient medium in the sense that you, for every erg you put out of energy, you get so much more of a result than in television, where you have to have 50 people standing around, you know, to to basically be able to say hi. Um, And I don't do, and I never have done stand up. And uh, this is a way of me making myself right. And come up with new characters and and keep the keep it fresh. Um, and every week I say, "Why the fuck are you doing this?" To myself as we approach deadline time. Uh, and every week I'm glad I did. You know. Yeah. So it's just, um, and it's it's um, in this media universe, it's getting a little easier. But when I started it, it was not really that easy. Oh, to yeah. have a thing of your own that nobody else, there was never a meeting beforehand. There was never a memo afterwards. It's just been me and the audience uh, for, for this long period of time. And uh, so uh, no matter how constrained I may have felt in a job that I was going to do during the week, I had this little island of freedom. Oh,
2: I love that! I, you know, I, I, it's the same thing with me doing the five hundred. It's like I'm so busy right now working on so many projects, and I look so forward to this. And I mean, of course, mine relies on the guest and the music, and I have this, but just to have that comedy improv mental jam session with yourself, I mean, like, have has something? You know, have you taken something from the show and expanded on it, even bigger?
1: Oh yeah, but the songs, the songs about Donald Trump, were all written for originally for the radio show and i did i put demo versions on the radio show and then i i thought uh as we began this year wow i've i've collected enough to put together a record of the best ones and then i went into the studio and and did proper recording versions of them so uh, yeah uh things come from the radio show and and get another life uh more often than not yeah The thing about it is, uh, I don't know if this is true of everybody, but it's certainly true of me. Uh, uh, I find my greatest inspiration in desperation.
2: I think that's the most true statement as an artist I've ever heard in my life.
1: You know, I got to do something for the fucking show this week. What the fuck am I going to do? Oh. Oh you know that's the process
2: I mean it's I mean some of the the best material I've ever written is when I'm I'm dealing with the most amount of stress in my life you know or when I'm at my when I was at my brokest mm-hmm. it was like stand up <laughs> was it was just you had to create yeah because if you didn't create then you, you were you were gonna yeah exactly now I'm eating good though I'm hey, eating baby. real good dude all right dude, what, high, I got I got high salmon off that hog high off that hog <laughs> I got I got salmon fillets I got everything Ooh. all right Junko partner Uh, Junko 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 Junko. Junko. okay well you know I'm I'm trying all right (laughs) so Harry do you remember uh, when I said a few songs ago that that song had my favorite moment on the album yeah I
1: lied
2: kick it Peter I love it when an uh, artist just knocks out all the instruments and it's just them and the drums that mm-hmm. might be one of my favorite things in music. And to hear that with Max's voice, which is very similar to mine, uh, my natural speaking voice. it's it's just
1: phenomenal. Um, you haven't done to your voice what he did to his, though. I'm guessing. I'm guessing really
2: you don't know
1: oh, all right have, me and
2: mac have a lot in common which we're about to talk about
1: okay so <laughs> junko partner is pronounced that way because it's, it's about, about the junk. junk oh yeah it's yeah. about
2: the junk and yeah. uh mac was actually a heroin addict until he got clean in 1989 um so we connected i was a i was a you know i was an opiate fan many moons ago you were a dabbler I was, oh, I di- definitely dibble dabbled just a little bit. You know, yeah. I recommend it for everybody. Try <laughs> fentanyl once. Just try it once. You're not going to stop, but try it once. <laughs> so, this blues song about a local junkie by James Wee Willie Waynes from 1951 has its roots in previous songs and has since been covered and revised in a bunch of musical styles, including reggae, folk, blues, and rock by many artists. So, um,. I wanted to do this because a couple albums ago we did a Sandinista by The Clash and we had Tom Murillo on from Rage Against the Machine. And this song, when this came on, I didn't even realize it through the name, but uh, my writing partner uh, told me, he was like, dude, that's on The Clash. So I wanted, we just listened uh, to uh, Junko Partner by Dr. John. Now, uh, Peter, play a little bit by The Clash. I want you to hear this here. I love anytime somebody covers something, especially when you get to hear like two, just like I mean, totally the different ends of the spectrum, and yet the still the 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 heart of it is there. So, according to Mac, this was well known among musicians in New Orleans and elsewhere as the anthem of the dopers, the whores, the pimps, and the cons. Mm-hmm. And I've read that many inmates in Angola, the state prison farm mentioned in the song, have written thousands of verses to this <laughs> with each sharing their experience. What are your thoughts on this, bud? Um,
1: that's the best thing I've heard about Angolia ever. Really? Uh, it's a fearsome <laughs> place. Um, yeah, this, this, this is this. The, the, the idea that this has one songwriting credit on it, again, is like a... a a little amusing because this this is a song that's been built uh, the way, let's say, uh, land has been built by accretion over a long period of time. Uh, and so there there are a lot of fingerprints on this song because it has gone through the experiences of so many people uh, to, to get here. Uh, I know uh, Professor Longhair uh, before Mac had a pretty uh, well-known version of it. Uh, I think James Booker, whom we haven't mentioned yet, but who is a uh, seminal, uh, not a Seminole, but a seminal New Orleans piano player uh, who had, uh, like you, some uh, mild acquaintanceship with the subject of the song, had a killer version of it. B- Booker, um, I think, definitely influenced Mac. Uh, he is probably the least well-known uh, New Orleans icon uh, since Buddy Bolden, who basically is accredited with starting jazz in the first place, the first trumpet player to pick up the horn and, and play jazz. Uh, Booker was uh, one of those people I was talking about earlier, that if you saw him on the right night, you just thought you'd died and gone to heaven. And if you saw him on another night, you thought he'd died, gone to heaven and gotten high. Um, <laughs> but uh, his, he was he's a profound influence. The thing that that... Mac picks up on uh, from both uh, Professor Longhair and Booker is uh, his R&B, New Orleans R&B, is heavily inflected by Latin rhythms and Latin syncopation, and uh, especially Cuban. There's a big, big line between two islands in the Caribbean and New Orleans. One is Cuba and and the other one is Haiti. Haiti provided a lot of the people that came to New Orleans early on. Cuba provided a lot of the rhythmic uh, pulse for New Orleans music. And it's how they smooshed together Booker, Professor Longhair, and Mac. how they smooshed together that thing of Latin music with the, the more, more uh, two-and-four drive of... Uh, r&b and soul music and and you know af- african music
2: yeah um this actually this song inspired uh many different people this is where bob dylan got the title for his 1986 album knocked out loaded um all right stack a lee did i say that one right
1: i don't know about that that it, it, I, i've seen it as stagger lee a lot you know
2: well i got it written as stack oh i know dash yeah. stack, uh, oh. dash lee yeah This is the legendary historical story of Stagger Lee Shelton, a black pimp in the late 1800s St. Louis, Missouri, who shot and killed his acquaintance, Billy Lyons, in the Bill Curtis Saloon after Lyons took Shelton's Stetson hat during an argument. So he took his hat and then he killed him. Um, And I can relate to that because if you can do anything you want to me, but you just don't fuck with my hat. I only got a couple. What about your
1: what, what about your blue suede shoes? Uh,
2: I might stab, not shoot. No. Okay. fair I would fair stab enough. or 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 Nancy Kerrigan club, but you were not You fair
1: you you are a very fair man.
2: So a version of this song dates back to 1897, but it was first recorded in 1923 and became a number 1 hit for Lori Price in 1959.
3: Uh Peter play 111. When all the ladies
2: I love when musicians take like a uh, this horror story and then they put this music to it and make it so upbeat, you know. I wish they would have kept doing that throughout the years. I could just imagine it being like, Oh, the Menendez brothers, they were bad boys. Menendez brothers couldn't play with their toys, but they killed. All right, that's respect to the Menendez
1: family, I'm sorry, not the brothers. Yeah.
2: They can go fuck themselves.
1: Um, I thought you were going to segue into the the O.J. song. I was waiting for him.
2: O.J. Simpson in his car. There you go. The cops are chasing him, but he's driving too far (laughs) in his Bronco. Oh yeah, he got the Ford Bronco, but do the diddly do, but da but
1: You notice that uh, as Ford has brought back the Bronco, they haven't used OJ in the ads. Oh
2: fuck no! <laughs> come on, come that was on. the greatest advertisement in the world, though. Yeah,
1: uh, not driving it slow anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I was. I'm interested by that that uh, version of Stagger Lee because a lot of people take it slow. A lot of people take it as like a a blues kind of feel to it. And and Mac kind of does this what Stan Stan Freeberg, the musical parodist of the earlier age, called that cling 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 jazz, those triplets on the piano. Which gives it an almost 50s B feel to it. Yes. Even though it does they're doing it in the 70s. Um Lloyd Price whom you mentioned was also uh, a performer from New Orleans. Um so Mac is picking up on the not a, not only on a, the history of an R&B song but on, you know, the history local, of New Orleans, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look,
2: I wanted to ask you about revisiting uh stuff just like just like Mac is doing. You revisited uh, Derek Smalls, Mm -hmm. the 2018 album Smalls Change, Meditations Upon Aging. Yes. And at a show at the Wiltern uh, that my writer Morty went to, he said everybody he knew loved it. Uh, So what I want to know is what drew you back to Derek Smalls?
1: Uh, First, I got to say the uh, video uh, of that concert will be coming out uh, soon. Nice. 11 cameras, uh, really great sound, a lot of great uh guest artists uh from the rock and roll universe um there was going to be another spinal tap tour and i had started writing some songs and when the tour went away i thought fuck i'm going to keep writing songs and uh do something with them um i i'd just gotten into the head of of that first couple of songs and thought i i don't want to stop doing this right now uh and then from there i i just got more and more stupidly uh pretentious in terms of what kind of show Derek would do. He ended up doing a show with not one because that's cliche but two symphony orchestras uh, which you know still hasn't been repeated. (laughs) Metallica hasn't done that. No they sure haven't. Um, And getting this whole bunch of of guest stars to be in on the joke on the record and in in the concert too Uh, and a whole new uh, twist on uh, Stonehenge where we actually go live via satellite to uh, Stonehenge in the middle of the show, forgetting that it's the middle of the night and foggy at Stonehenge in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. uh, Stuff like that, you know?
2: Yeah, I get it. It's such a great character. Uh, I really wish I could have seen that show and I will watch uh, the concert video when that comes out. A hundred percent. Good. Coming to the next song, which I would have, speaking of your concert that I wish I would have seen live, I wish I could have been in the room uh when Mac recorded Tippy Tina, uh this is just perfect Peter, play forty four seconds
3: by and you know what you
1: want to do
2: I have no idea what he's saying, but mm-hmm. man, it, to me this I can just envision Mac just like wrecked at the piano, and it couldn't be more perfect. I love the vibe this song creates. I love that he's he's not even singing into the microphone. Mm-hmm. He's probably leaning back. And and it's just, if I could have seen this live, I, I just think it's perfect. I think it fits so well with this album, and it's such a break from all the, and I'm not going to even call it like mayhem at all, but I mean, a lot of these songs have so many moving pieces, so when you can just cut it down to just him and, and focus on what he's doing... It really shows you just how incredible of a performer he is.
1: Oh, yeah. Thoughts on this? If this record had been done in New Orleans, I'm pretty sure that they would have just stuck a mic in Mac's piano room and had him do it like that. And it would sound like that. But this was done in L.A. and and by a... a, uh, a New Orleanian, transplanted New Orleanian uh, Harold Batiste produced it. Uh, one of the you know great musical families of New Orleans, and I'm sure they did it in a studio, and then spent two weeks doing the uh, working on the reverb to make it sound. I was one mic Mike in Max's room. Um, "Tipitina" is uh, usually a cri- uh, attributed to Professor Longhair.
2: Professor Longhair from '53, yeah.
1: And I don't think there's a. S- you could get two people in New Orleans to agree on what the fuck the words are.
2: Yeah, but I don't wanna know. I don't yeah. wanna know. I, I usually read the lyrics, Harry, and I was like, no, let it be a mystery, because whatever he's saying, I feel. And feeling is way more important.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Professor Longhair was uh, a really legendary and deservedly so piano player. He was uh, also a, a real interesting singer. He he had this habit of uh, at the end of a phrase, he'd hit a note, and I'm going to do a really bad job of this, and drop a drop an octave. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's Tipitina's was a song where he really could give that full full sway, and and nobody nobody can do it like him. But um, yeah, it's it's you know there's a, a famous nightclub in New Orleans called Tipitina's in honor of of that song. Uh, it is. I think if anything in the second half of the 20th century is a deeply embedded piece of the New Orleans musical culture it is tipatina. It's that deep into it.
2: Sure, it feels like that. Well, um being that, you know, you've adopted New Orleans as your second home.
1: It's my first home.
2: It's your it's your first home. Well you were you if I'm wrong, you were born in here
1: you were yeah but i mean I, that's where i live that's where i vote that's it's, it's my home home
2: okay totally so what is the best kept secret we all need to know about the big easy
1: um well i would say that everybody knows about the music and the food and the way the place looks uh, unfortunately the marketing for the city to the rest of the country and the rest of the world has been sort of outsourced to Budweiser and Miller in the last few decades. So people think that everybody in New Orleans is, you know, what Bourbon Street is, which is basically Bourbon Street is when tourists uh, come and think, hey, I can do anything I want because that's what it is. Um, New Orleans is... uh, what, What you find out that's really shocking or surprising even to... If you live there, if you see this for the first time, is the day after Mardi Gras, which is Ash Wednesday. And you just are gobsmacked by the number of people with ashes on their forehead that are walking around. It's a very Catholic town. Wow. It's a very Catholic town. And one of the reasons that it's special is because it's a Catholic town in a Protestant state, and it lives in this really great tension with the rest of Louisiana, the new Louisiana North of the I-10, which is really, really deep South uh, in that way. And it's, it's Baptist deep South and you don't really get a sense of that cleavage until you go there and see, wow, this is really, I mean, every half the street names in new Orleans that aren't named after Confederate soldiers are named after saints. Um, but i think the thing that's most salient is um when you walk around and you realize this is a big city where strangers talk to each other and uh every every errand you set out a day you've got 3 errands to accomplish it, it, they're going to take 3 times as long because they're going vis- to they're going to visit with you yeah <laughs> everybody's going to visit with you and man i i had Uh, A really dramatic example of that uh, a while back, I was in Venice, California, near where, where I stay when I'm in LA. And I had a 10 item list to get at the Whole Foods. And I went in there and got my 10 items and went to the 10 items or less line and checked out and got to my car and went, fuck, I forgot two items that I was on my list. So I go back in and I get the two items. I end up at the same 10 item or less line. Five minutes later... And the guy says to me, paper or plastic? And I thought, if this was New Orleans, he'd say, you forget something, baby? Yeah. That's the difference.
2: Yeah. And I love that. I love that. Because if you try to talk to somebody in L.A., they're like, don't fucking talk to me.
1: Yeah. I'm triggered well, right now. Stop it. <laughs> you know, what? the rest of the country, uh, two things are going on. The machines are becoming more like people and the people are becoming more like machines. And that's not happening in New Orleans yet.
2: Not yet. All right. Uh, those lonely, lonely nights. Here's another mid-50s Earl King song. Uh, Peter, play a little taste. Day
3: has been dark since you've been gone.
2: What I love about this record, I I, it, it, I wonder if he knew this uh, when sequencing it, but I feel like every song just keeps getting better and better. It's like this album is just climbing, mm. and it, mm. and it's it's just it's just phenomenal. Uh, thoughts on this?
1: Well, I, I again, Earl King. Uh, I, I'm glad that Mac put a spotlight on Earl King at this point. He he had labored in. Had had hits in the fifties and then had kind of labored in obscurity since then. And, and I think Mac helped bring Earl back to prominence, at least for a little while in New Orleans. Uh, great, great songwriter. And um, you know, that what you're hearing in that song, that dum, dum ba dum ba dum bum was really a staple of of fifties rock and roll. But Earl took it and put such a great melody and such a, a great lyric on top of it that he took something that was nearly a cliche and made it fresh and bright and new again. You know,
2: very. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get twenty twenty? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called Twenty Twenty, where myself, Benny Goodman. So I wanted, it's funny that you said that because I wanted to ask you about your time on SNL as a writer and a cast member from 79 to 80. Now, I know you're laughing because it was so, it's kind of, it's very interesting. So from 79 to 80, you do it. Then you come back after Spinal Tap uh, with Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal for the 84 and 85 season. And you've said that your first season was unpleasant. So why did you go back?
1: Smart people can do dumb things. Ask Bill Clinton.
2: <laughs> and what was your experience like the second time?
1: I left in midseason. Really? Mm-hmm. 140 AM, January 13th.
2: What was the what was the breaking point?
1: Um Basically, I'd been told early on, you're the guy among all these people who really cares about uh Politics and the news and stuff. So we're really looking for you to do that. And uh, three times during that half season, I had a uh, Ronald Reagan sketch. He was the president at the time. Uh, And three times uh, the sketch was killed during the show. I was in Ronald Reagan makeup and three times it's killed during the show. I'm going, okay, guess you're really depending on me for the topicals. It's hard to remember now because it has become such a topical uh, news-oriented show. But when I was there both times, I was the only one who was writing stuff about the news, about newscasters or the news. There was Weekend Update, but I'm talking about the sketches in the show. They were all whimsical or looking for, you know, oh, here are people in bee costumes or, you know, I mean, stuff that had nothing to do with what was going on in the world. Uh, But they were just kind of whimsical comedy. And I felt... Neither time did I belong there. Um, also, I like to disappear behind the characters I do. That's why when you see that, that video of of uh, Donald Trump singing Son-in-Law, it ain't me. It's me, but it, it ain't me. Yeah. That's that's my goal state. And, uh, you know, I know that certainly uh, the producer of the show, the first time I was there, always wanted to see the actor – in front of the character. That's why, you know, Dan Aykroyd wore a mustache playing Nixon. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, Nixon's got a mustache tonight. huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just a total different attitude about aesthetics.
2: Is, is there a moment from, from Saturday night live that you can look back and be like proud of or
1: Synchron, men synchronized swimming. So uh, do you want to talk about
2: that a little bit? Cause it's, it's probably, you know, that's, I think they. I think the first time I saw that was on Comic Relief, or maybe not Comic Relief, but fuck it. Maybe it was like an SNL retrospective. Years yeah, they run it every year. Yeah, I mean, like, can you just tell me a little bit about that? Because that's you and 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 Martin Short and and Christopher. And Chris Guest. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, how much fun that must have been?
1: Yeah. Well, anytime you have a job at an office in Midtown Manhattan, you you can say don't 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 bother me. I got to go rehearse in the pool for a week. <laughs> You've got it made. Uh, I was living. I was in Los Angeles that year. Eighty four was the year of the Olympics in Los Angeles. It was the first time that uh, two pseudo events had been added to the Olympic calendar: rhythmic gymnastics, with you know the ribbons and the things. Oh yeah, yeah. And synchronized swimming. And I thought this is a joke that these people get the same medals as you know the fifty yard dash and the, the pole vaulters and the the real athletes, I yeah. used to say. And uh, so when I came to New York, I was just full of anger about that and uh, infected Marty and Chris with it. And uh, we came up with that for the first episode of the new season, which was an you know, I'll tell you one other reason that I thought probably was a good time to get, good place to get out of the second time. Chris and Marty and I, and I think maybe Billy, had talked about. The show is well-established enough. We don't need guest hosts for, to get ratings. And guest hosts means that you're writing comedy for people with no comedy chops. Yes. And also, more seriously, you're making fun of politicians in their presence or with them. So, in effect, you're helping to humanize them. And that shouldn't be the satirist's job. You go humanize your own fucking self. Don't, don't use me to do it. So we made that case to the producer the second time around. And so that first episode, the one the Synchronized Swimming was on, had no guest host. It just had the cast. And we thought, all right, not bad. Good stuff on the show, kind of good feeling. By week three, guest host was Jesse Jackson. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's not funny. And the office had been turned into the Operation Push headquarters for the week. Yeah. Oh.
2: Well, I'm listen, man. If you going back, got us that synchronized swimming sketch. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm sorry you went through hell that second time, but you know where what we didn't go through hell on Huey Smith medley: A high blood pressure, B don't you just know it, C well I'll be John Brown. This is a tribute to Huey Piano Smith, one of Mac's mentors. And uh, remember when I said my favorite moment was the other two songs? You lied. I lied again.
3: KICK IT! Baby, don't believe I'm into love you Ha! Ha! Ha!
2: I sent this song to my friend last night uh, from my acting class because he was like, we were talking about some scene, and I go, dude, I'm I was like, dude, I'm knee-deep in Dr. John. He's like, I never listen to Dr. John. And oh. I sent him this. He immediately said, what album? And now I'm a fan. Mm. I mean, it's just so great. Like Like I said earlier, you have to be dead inside to not love that moment. I just love the song so much.
1: Yeah, yeah. He clearly was deeply, deeply, deeply influenced by Huey Piano-Smith as a performer, uh, as later in in his life as a writer, and certainly as a a piano player. Um, I never got to see Huey Piano-Smith. I mean, the list of people I'm, kicking myself that i didn't get to new orleans early enough to see is really long
2: that's all of us man that's that's not just in music it's like my dad always regrets saying he never went to go see lenny bruce he was invited in philadelphia when he was in college at temple and he was like eh, i don't have time i got to study and it's like you know one of the the face i mean really the voice of of all the comics we have now started with him so don't beat yourself up harry that's what i'm saying
1: i i did get to see lenny bruce did you not only that, I was editing my College Humor magazine, went to see Lenny Bruce in Hollywood. This was, people don't really get the the deal, but uh, in New York at the time, you needed what was called a cabaret lesson, license to perform in nightclubs. And the police department took his cabaret license away because he used dirty words on stage <laughs> and uh, thereby deprived him of uh, basically the right to eat. Uh, the police department, the fucking police department. And so when I saw him in Hollywood, he was fighting some case or other. And uh, you think Donald Trump spends a long time discussing his grievances.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I've seen it. He, I mean, that was his set towards the end was just. Reading yeah. The court documents.
1: Yeah. And I went backstage afterwards just to say, you know, I'm from this humor magazine at UCLA and big fan, blah, blah, blah. And he tries to enlist me in interviewing jurors <laughs> for his case. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I did get this. And I, and I attended Lenny Bruce's funeral. Wow. Where Paul Krasner gave one of the Paul Krasner, the editor of The Realist, which was a great satirical magazine in the 60s, gave uh, just a kick ass uh, eulogy. And send off to Lenny Bruce.
2: Can I? I, I want to say this to 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 the fleece army, my listeners, because uh, you know you are you had such an illustrious career, dude. <laughs> like, I mean, I, here's some of the shit that I pulled out as a child actor in in the '53 movie Abbott and Costello Goes to Mars, as well as on the Jack Benny Show. Uh, You were the original Eddie Haskell character in Leave It to Beaver, but your parents wouldn't let you do the series uh, so you could have a normal childhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly, that worked out.
1: Yeah, that really worked out.
2: Yeah. You co-wrote the 1979 movie Real Life with Albert Brooks, which is his directorial debut, which lampooned the early phenomenon of reality television, and you scarily predicted uh, just how bad it was going to (laughs) get. And you wrote for the classic TV show, uh, TV comedy, Fernwood Tonight with Martin Mull and the late, great Fred Willard. You are, my friend, a renaissance man. Like, it's, it's insane. I, I just got to know, where did all of that drive come from?
1: Um, I guess my, my best guess at trying to explain that is uh, my dad died when I was 12. And I got the message... This doesn't go on forever. Yeah. Real strong, real, real, you know, I got the news. And once, once that comes through, uh, you want to make the most of the time you got here. I think.
2: I, I, and I think you are, uh, more than most people. I mean, everybody should take any artist should take a cue from your playbook. Uh, trust me. I, I completely agree with that. I, I I mean, not even so much. I lost my dad. I've lost my best friend. And I mean, The, the thing that, that makes me enjoy this journey so much is knowing that this is the fun part. (laughs) Life is the fun part. Like we got to deal with eternity and death and we have no idea what that's going to be like. So if that doesn't put a fire into your ass to, to, to work and do the projects that you love. Um, but I, on a side note, I got to ask, did you fight back, uh, with your parents with the leave it to beaver thing?
1: No. No, uh, I didn't care that much. I, I had had such a great time working for Jack Benny. I mean, that was the, that was it. That was the, the best it could ever be. Uh, uh, I'm working alongside Mel Blanc, the voice of the Looney Tunes characters. I'm working for maybe the smartest, most generous person I've ever met in comedy. Uh, I'm working with a bunch of people where there's never uh, any operatic drama about making comedy if you know what I mean. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I, it, it was just like, we're here to do a job. We all know how to do the job. Let's have fun and go home. Uh, it, it was just, I, I couldn't have had a better time. So yeah. Okay. So I don't do leave it to beaver. Uh, it, it, like, eh, it,
2: it's no big deal. am dude. I'm going to be on this animated show. that's going to run 31. years. Yeah. Be right. A, yeah. Be a ride At universal studios. No big deal.
1: Yeah. By the way, I'm not in my, none of my characters are in the ride.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. that's a fucking
1: travesty, dude. Lenny, Lenny. That's, that's, that's what happens when you offer too little money to an actor. No,
2: nope, I get it. I totally get it. Um, but I, and I gotta ask this, uh, working with Mel Blanc, I mean, is that kind of what started the, the doing the voices you were already doing that before?
1: Yeah, I, I had, my dad had a tape recorder and I would get friends over and we do little shows and, uh, um, you know, I thought I was doing different voices. Of course, with a kid's voice, they all came out sounding the same. Um, But so I realized later on when I was thinking about that, oh, I wasn't training my voice. I was training my ear. Completely, completely. Because in my head, they were sounding like who I wanted them to sound like, even though I didn't have the pipes to accomplish it yet.
2: Sure. But also, you know, being around one of the greatest voice actors uh, and really, in my opinion, the originator um well, it's not
1: only your, your opinion. In fact, he was the originator <laughs> yeah, of those sure, all those characters. You know, I mean, um, they're they're being done by others now, but those are Mel's voices. Yeah, that's Mel. It's one hundred percent Mel. All
2: right, the album ends with Little Liza Jane. Liza Jane, Liza God, Jane. God, I am fucking this up, dude. Uh, keep it in there, Peter. Don't cut my mistakes this is this is I want the people to to hear the truth.
1: We're humanizing you, yeah, please,
2: please. I need it. all right, so the record ends with a song that goes back to at least uh the nineteen tens. It was likely based on a song sung by slaves before the Civil War as what would have been historically known as a Negro folk song and then appropriated. For minstrel shows. Um, Peter, play 115. Once again, uh, proves my point that, uh, that that black people, uh, are fucking awesome because out of the worst shit in the world, they created so much incredible art and that love for being able to do that and write this kind of like songs during a, uh, an oppressive uh, situation is, is just incredible. Uh, I love that he closed the album with this.
1: Yeah, that's clearly, uh, based on call and response, uh, music from Africa, um, And, uh, yeah, when you learn the the histories of these songs and how how they go back to chance, uh, you know, New Orleans has a place called Congo Square uh, right across the street from the French Quarter. And Congo Square was where, uniquely among all the southern states, uh, the heavy, heavy burden of slavery was allowed to be lifted one day a week. The slaves were allowed to to play their music in Congo Square on Sundays. And that's probably why the music culture uh, born from Africa stayed alive in New Orleans when it didn't stay alive elsewhere, uh, Congo Square is is really a remarkable part of the city's history, and there's a Southwest Louisiana slide guitar master called Sonny Landreth, who wrote a song. Um, I can't express how moving it is. Uh, called Congo Square about that place and and uh, its place in the in the history of, of Louisiana music. Uh, it's it's well worth hear- Sonny Landreth is well worth hearing. I'm going to check it out. I'm gonna
2: check it out, especially if, if you feel it that much. Oh yeah. Great album, fantastic way to end it. Uh, if like listen, I like I said, I wasn't a huge Dr. John fan before, but now like I'm so happy that this record came up when it did on this list. Um, do you wanna do some facts and then we'll get you out of here? Yeah. All right. Facts in, the facts in the facts and the facts, facts. All right. Was that pretty how is my Dr. John, by the way?
1: Better than his now. That's
2: okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mac formed his first group, the Dominoes, while still in Jesuit high school, but the priest told him to choose between playing music in clubs or going to school. He was expelled and never looked back. Thank God he decided <laughs> to do that, so I wanted to ask you, what was your first love that you would have been happy to do without looking back
1: doing uh doing comedy on in radio and TV. I mean, I have a pretty solid memory. I also have a photograph, but I have a pretty solid memory of the first time I made Jack Benny laugh. Tell me. I, well, we were doing a script for the radio show and the kids that he was sort of his Cub Scout troop were doing our version of his show. And I had two characters I did. One was, was uh, this guy who's played on the many show by Sheldon Leonard. And he was always running into this guy and he was always like, he was like a racetrack tout and he wasn't written in a Brooklyn accent, but I threw in a little Brooklyn accent as we were doing the read through around the table and his hand went up in the air, slapped it on the table and he just laughed way out loud. I'm seven or eight years old and I'm just thinking, give me another one of those right away. Yeah, dude, <laughs> that's it. Oh, that's what you want. You know? Oh, that's, I mean,
2: to get, to get one of the greats, I mean, if not, you know, at his profession in comedy and everything to, to laugh. I mean, that's, Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's happened to me. Uh, and I hold on to those moments so dearly. Mm. So yeah. I'm so glad that he laughed at you for that. You deserved it. You probably deserved it. You probably I, deserved
1: it. I, I earned my laugh, baby. You
2: earned it, yeah, for sure. All right, so Mac wrote and performed the title song to the '90s sitcom Blossom, starring Mayim Bialik. He also sang the jingle for Popeye's Chicken and Biscuit restaurants, which I knew. Popeye's didn't know Blossom. Mm-hmm. You know that. You know that one. It's like, for my opinion, the the
5: nation, the sun will Bible's only shine.
2: So. Which of your career highlights would you gladly leave off your resume?
1: Uh, My appearance in the late 1970s movie, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh.
2: Ooh! I think I'm watching that tonight, dude. Do not do that. Do not do that.
1: <laughs> do not do that. That's an hour and a half. You will never get back. Oh, oh come
2: on. I got time to burn. Come on, dude. We're in a quarantine, dude. I'm looking for anything to watch yeah, right now. Yeah,
1: no. Do, do not watch that one. Did you have, at least have fun making it? No, not really. It's, it was a month in Pittsburgh. Okay, you can stop there. That's <laughs> exactly. Got it, dude. That's all it was. All right. No, I, 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 I should say... uh The fun part was being around another member of the cast, Jonathan Winters.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, That's incredible.
1: Yeah. But the, the movie was the first and the last movie I was ever in where both the producer and director stayed up all night, every night doing Coke and it shows and it shows.
2: (laughs) So let's just, let's just film this, this scene really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, all right, Jesus. Uh do we get a lunch break? No, nobody's eating cuz I'm not hungry. And I haven't <laughs> been hungry for the last 3 days. That's right. Um when speaking of that, when Mac was in his early 20s, he got arrested and served jail time for selling and using narcotics and for running a brothel. So, there you go. Mm-hmm. That's I was wondering why he went to jail and uh you know, that's, that's pretty That's cool where the idea. music comes
1: from. Yeah,
2: for sure. Uh and last fact the Dr. John persona was based on a local Voodoo herb doctor and healer who was a 19th century Senegalese prince that moved to New Orleans from Haiti and was rumored to have been married five times and over 50 children. Mac originally created it for his old high school friend and fellow session musician, Ronnie Barron, mm. who plays piano and organ and sings on this album. After Ronnie declined, Mac took it for himself. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so much. So the final question I want to ask you is which of your characters is most endearing to you and why
1: Derek? Uh, I've, I've spent more time playing Derek than anybody except Richard Nixon. And there's nothing endearing about Richard Nixon. Um, uh, so, you know, you spend enough time with a character and, uh, you can slide into it pretty, pretty easily. And, uh, it, it feels like a second home.
2: Sure. All right. So I got to ask this. What's, what was your, what's like your, what's your, what's your golden spinal tap moment? Like what has been your favorite moment while, while playing that character?
1: Um, I would say we were playing Carnegie hall and uh, we were trying to figure out how to, how the stonehenge appears because it didn't have enough space to drop it. So we were thinking about all sorts of things and, and then, in that tour, we had a, a fake tour sponsor, which was an adult diaper uh, called And uh And we hang a, a banner over the stage that said, wet is good, dry is better. And another one that said, rock with confidence. <laughs> and the, the guys have come up and say, no, you can't hang the banner there. We said, why not? You can't have commercial sponsorship in Carnegie Hall no, you don't understand. This is a joke. This is, no, you don't understand. This is Carnegie Hall. So that evening I got to come out and say the three words that I'm proudest of. Carnegie fucking (laughs) Hall. I don't think those words had ever been spoken from that stage before.
2: That's so great. Uh, Harry, this is just so phenomenal. Uh, do you have anything you want to promote?
1: Uh, just check the songs, the Trump songs out on the, YouTube, there's a new one every week, and the next uh, video will be out uh, mid September, and uh, we carry on right through till uh, till D Day.
2: <laughs> till D Day, dude. I-, I can't thank you enough, Harry, for coming on. Thank you so much, buddy. My
1: pleasure, man. Thank you.
2: What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Harry Shearer. I want him to leave me a voicemail message as any of the characters from The Simpsons. And you know what? He said he wouldn't do it. But you know what? I bet I can get him to do it. Follow him on Twitter at TheHarryShearer and find All Things (laughs) Harry. That's so much fun to say. All Things Harry at HarryShearer.com. Check out the newest season of The Simpsons. Watch Spinal Tap. Enjoy his work, man. This guy is a fucking legend. Listen to the show. It's an honor that we had this dude on the podcast. Support him in every way. Now, we just listened to Dr. John from 1972. This week, our new music is Mark Broussard, and you are listening to a new version of his song, Come In From The Cold from Home, The Dockside Sessions. Mark is a musician from Louisiana. And he has described himself as Bayou Soul, pulling from funk, blues, R&B, rock, and his southern roots. And Dr. John is a huge fan of Mark and gave him major props before he passed away. You can find all the links to this music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artists that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Leonard Skinner Week as we go deep into their 1973 debut album. Y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album, stay
3: fleecy, dougal, katogle.
5: I've been hurt just like you. I know how hard it is to give your love away, but baby, me to say I'm warm. All I'm really asking of you is coming from the cold. Her just like you, I know how hard it is to give your love i now
3: Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson,
0: where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah.